So tonight we are in Exodus 31, um, still in Exodus, trucking along for quite some time now, uh, and we are wrapping up the section uh, concerning the tabernacle. So again, Moses is uh, up on Mount Sinai, he's receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, and then Pastor Shane last week um, finished a section talking about the skills, the skilled craftsmen, excuse me, the ones that would be used to actually build the tabernacle. And then we come into this quite interesting section here that deals with the Sabbath. Um, and we'll dig into a little bit about why we think this is here in that particular section. So we'll be in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. And I'll ask that if you're able to stand, that you would stand uh, out of reverence for God's word as we read it together. Exodus 31, verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. You can be seated. Lord, thank you for this time and for this place that we get to gather as your people to hear your word, to worship you in spirit and truth, to come together to sing song, to sing praises to your name, and Lord, to grow closer to you, to understand you more. And Lord, we thank you for this church, this body of believers that have uh, assembled here tonight and, and all those who are part of this fellowship on a Sunday, Lord, that, that make up this particular body of Christ, Lord. Help us to always remember that apart from you, we can do nothing. Uh, we need each other, but all the more do we need you. Lord, I pray that you would be with me at this time. Open up our, our ears and our minds, Lord. Let us have ears to hear what you would say. Speak to us tonight as your servants. Through your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is an exciting subject to me, at least personally. I've always been uh, intrigued, if you will, with the idea of the Sabbath. And I may be a little bit nerdier than some of you that I actually read books on it and kind of, uh, you know, like to study that in my free time, apart from uh, getting to deliver a sermon like this. So when this section came up a few weeks ago, Pastor Michael said, hey, here's kind of two ones I was thinking about. Uh, maybe having you teach, which one would you like? I, I jumped on this one. I felt like this was something that uh, the Lord really wanted me to share with you all tonight. So it's a privilege to be able to do so. Um, again, as I mentioned, Moses is on the mountain, and he, he receives the instructions for the tabernacle. The last seven chapters have been all about that. And then we have this kind of interesting little section here, and kind of look at it and say, so, so why here, and why in relation to the tabernacle? Now, as usual, there's always debates among scholars, as you know, and so some of them might say um, that it was here to remind uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, the, the two skilled craftsmen, and even the others, that even though they had an important work to be done, even though they were going to be given that task with building the tabernacle, that they still had to remember 
that there was a Sabbath observance, that they needed to remember this. They had an important job, no doubt. They were quite literally building the, the house where God was going to reside. But God instructs Moses here to tell them that they still need to keep the Sabbath. It was a message almost of that their, their calling, even though it was sacred, uh, couldn't be used as an excuse for them to get out of the Sabbath. And we can think that there's some application in that for us as, as we think of maybe holy things, holy pursuits that we would want to do, serving and, and the like. But sometimes we can get caught up in some of those things and really miss the idea behind what's going on. God's been telling these two artists uh, particularly to make the tabernacle, but they were restricted from working on the Sabbath. It reminds us not to use our service to God as an excuse to break his law. But more specifically, it warns us not to come up with reasons why it is okay to break the Sabbath. If anyone had a good excuse, again, it was Bezalel and Holiab. But even they had to honor this particular day. Another commentator writes this. He says, the answer of why this particular section is here, the answer is that the tabernacle was for worship. Worship would occur weekly on the Sabbath, and if the Sabbath were not properly observed, then the tabernacle likewise would not also be properly used. And we know that there's been great attention to detail that's gone on into this tabernacle. Very specific things that have happened. Again, seven chapters, um, all with the little intricacies and the specific details for what's going on. So there was clearly importance here. Now, another question we wonder is, why is the Sabbath mentioned here again? Didn't we just go through this in, in the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, we saw that the Sabbath was given as a command to the people. So why is it being reinstated or, or really recommanded here? So let's take a look back in Exodus 20. Turn back with me a few chapters, if you will. In Exodus 20, it says this, picking it up in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." And we can see that there's a lot of similarities between these two sections. But here's just a few that are going to be different. The first one is in Exodus 20. Um, God specifically also mentions a stipulation that that command extends to your son or daughter, to your female or male servant, to your cattle, or to the sojourner who is staying with you in your land. But what we see in this new section, Exodus 31, are three new things. We're going to see a reason for the command. We're going to see a punishment for breaking the command, and then we are also going to see really a new command that is added to it. So these three things, we see that it is to be a sign. That's the, the title that we get for tonight's message, the sign of the Sabbath. It is to be a sign to you, we're told in verse 13 and verse 17. We're later told that violators of this commandment shall surely be put to death or that they shall be cut off from their people. That's verses 14 and 15. And then the new command is that it is to be celebrated perpetually throughout your generations. So we're going to dive into these three things kind of separately, but a few more things just on the idea of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? So in verse 13, we see the Lord say, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. 
my Sabbaths. Now, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat. You've maybe heard of that before, uh, most of you. And that Hebrew word Shabbat here, where it says, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, is Shabbati. It's, there's an ending in the Hebrew that refers to it as being mine, belonging to me. It's not two separate Hebrew words, but one Hebrew word that we find here. So let's dive deeper into that specific Hebrew word, Shabbat. Shabbat is specifically the Sabbath day of rest. It is, it is a noun. It is specifically called to this one particular day, a day that was holy, a day that was supposed to be set apart. It was used for the first time in Exodus 16. And if you'll go with me there, we're going to flip back uh, again, do a little time travel. So in Exodus 16 is the first time that we see this word Sabbath revealed in Scripture. Now, this is before the command, of course, in Exodus 20. So uh, it, it wasn't really uh, you know, codified into law yet, I guess you could say. But in Exodus 16, this is what the Lord says to Moses, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. The Lord is looking for if, if the people are going to listen to what he's saying. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Skip down to verse 22. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance. There's that word for the first time in Scripture. is a Shabbat, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over, put aside and be kept until morning. And that section continues, and if we go all the way down towards the end, it says that the people rested, in verse 30, they rested on the seventh day. Now, the word translated rested here is the same as the root word of Shabbat, the noun, but this word is a verb, to rest, okay? This is um, a little tricky, so I'll ask you to put on the thinking caps here with me as we look into this, and I'll try not to get super technical, but this Hebrew word, Shabbat, is uh, basically comprised of three letters, and in uh, ancient Hebrew, and even in modern Hebrew, there's no uh, letters that are vowels. So you have consonants, and then you have certain little accents and little diacritical marks that help you to discern how certain words are pronounced. So in this case, the word Shabbat is comprised of three letters. The first is an SH sound, sh. The next would be uh, just like our, our English letter B, and then the third letter would be like our English letter T. So it's S-H-B-T. That's kind of how it would be. So Shabbat, the noun, this, this particular day that is set apart, the sixth day of the week. But then we also have Shabbat. Now, I understand that probably sounds very similar to most of you, but let me just say that there are, there are two separate words. And I'm not even pronouncing this perfect. I'm not necessarily a Hebrew scholar, but I just uh, have an affinity for studying this. So this particular verb means to cease or to rest or to stop. So the idea of Shabbat, the noun, was derived from Shabbat, the verb, which means to cease, to rest, or to stop. 
And so in verse 17 in Exodus, it says that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Excuse me, but Exodus 31, verse 17. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. There's that verb again. He rested and was refreshed, but not in the sense that we think. Flip back with me a little bit further in time to Genesis 2, and we're going to see uh, the account of this. So Exodus 31, 17 is basically quoting Genesis 2 here, and we're going to take a look at the creation story, really the end of the creation story. We'll pick it up actually in chapter 1, verse 31. It says, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So now we get into the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested. There's that word, Shabbat. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So God himself, it says, rested on this day, but we know that God doesn't rest in the physical sense, of course, right? We know that God doesn't need that sort of rest. He's omnipotent by definition. That means he's all-powerful. He doesn't need to take a break and get recharged and get filled up with more power. He has that that unlimited supply. Isaiah 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and earth does not become weary or tired. So what does God do if he's not really resting? Well, back to this idea of stopping or ceasing, God just ceased from creating. For six days, he was in the act of creating, and on that seventh day, he ceased creating. He saw all that he had made. It was very good. And he completed the creation. Again, it wasn't that he needed rest. It was that he didn't need to do anything more. There was nothing else to be done. He saw what he had made it, and behold, it was very good. We think of our hearts being refreshed. Maybe that's a good way we can think about it. Uh, someone m- might say that, that they were refreshed in their spirit or, or in their heart. And it doesn't mean that physically they, they lied down and they took a nap. No, it means that they were filled with, with joy, with, with gladness. There was, there was something else going on. And that's the idea here, that God does not need to rest. God doesn't rest in that sense. That's an important note that I think we need to take a look at. And then we're told that he blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it. He made it holy. And that's the first time, by the way, in the Bible that God declares something holy. The Hebrew word is kadosh, means to consecrate, to sanctify, to prepare for, to dedicate, to be holy, to be sanctified, or to be separate. And we're familiar with this word all throughout Scripture as God later eventually calls um, even certain places, people, things to be holy. But this is the first time that we see it. There's a, uh, a Jewish theologian, Abraham Heschel has a great book on the Sabbath that I'd recommend if any of you are interested. Again, any nerds like me, you could pick that up. It's a great book. He says this, how extremely significant is the fact that it is applied, this is referring to uh, holiness or being sanctified, that it is applied to time, that holiness is applied to time, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of creation to any object in space, no physical thing, that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. This is a radical departure from traditional religious thinking. 
the mythical mind would expect that after heaven and earth had been established, that God would create a holy place, a holy mountain, a, a holy place to come and, and worship, a holy a spring of some sort, whereupon his sanctuary was to be established. Yet it seems as if to the Bible it is holiness in time, the Sabbath, which comes first. So get back to the creation story. He, he rested on the seventh day. There was, there was nothing else he could do. We know later that uh, we would see the fall in Genesis 3 and this perfect harmony that God had created where everything was, was very good and this sort of paradise, if you will, that, that he had created in, in the garden for Adam and Eve, that they would, that they would break his commands. We know that, that sin would enter into the world through them and everything would be lost, so to speak, at that point. In Genesis 3.17, God tells Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so man in his kind of pride and you know, self-seeking, self-fulfilling um, desire, he turned, not on purpose, but really just by, by accident, by disobedience, really, he turned something that was good, labor and work, something that God had commanded him to do, and he turned it into a curse, into toil. It's noted that labor is the blessing of man, but that toil is the misery of man. So after all this, we see that God is now working forward. God is restoring man back to himself and a little bit of hope. We've worked backwards and kind of seen some of what's going on, but let's move back again forward. God is working to restore man back to himself, and he's going to institute different laws, and he's going to institute lots of different things to reconcile man back to him, to sanctify him. So in Exodus 16, where we read through the manna, it was a message to the Israelites to trust him, to trust him for their provision, for them not to go out and gather on their own. It was also a test if they were going to obey him. We just read through that. We know that when they gathered on the other days, other than the Sabbath, that the manna spoiled. There were consequences for what happened. And then if we go further ahead again to Exodus 20, where we were, we have a, a command given, one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, earlier on in that chapter. And he gave them the Sabbath as really kind of a, a foretaste of what was to come. He had the promised land in mind for them, and unfortunately, many did not enter into that land. But even beyond that, there is an eternity. There is an eternal rest that awaits you and I, and the Sabbath is really just a foretaste of that. Uh, the book, The Sabbath, by Abraham Heschel, again, he quotes this. He says, The Sabbath is a metaphor for paradise and a testimony to God's presence. In our prayers, we anticipate a messianic era that will be a Sabbath, and each Sabbath prepares us for that experience. Unless one learns how to relish the taste of the Sabbath, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. I wish I had so much more time to go into just this idea of the Sabbath, but that clock goes so fast, so we're going to be moving forward. Um, again, we're in Exodus 31. We're going to look at the three uh, points that I mentioned, the three things that stand out about this particular section on the Sabbath. So the first one is that it's a sign. It is to be a sign. The Hebrew word is ot, um, similar to oath, actually, but ot, O-W-T, and it has uh, some significant uh, meaning. And one of the things I always like to do, and I would encourage, when you see a word like this in the Bible, you don't know what it is. Hopefully you have maybe a good concordance or something like that, and you can look up and see 
Where is this word used in other times in the Bible? So let's take a look at that. Where is this word uh, ot used in terms of a sign? Well, we see it for the first time in Genesis 9, the Noahic covenant. After the flood, God promised Noah that he would never again send a flood to destroy the earth, to judge people for their sin. And what did he do? He gave a, a sign, an oat, and you all remember what that was, of course, correct? You're quiet. You remember in your head? What did he put in the sky? A rainbow, exactly. That rainbow was the sign of the covenant that he made. That's Genesis 9, 12 to 13. Then a little bit later in Genesis 17, we have the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, 4 says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you, speaking to uh, Abraham, will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. If you skip down, he says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be the sign, the oat, the sign of the covenant between you and me. So we can see that every time God makes a covenant with his people, or, or actually in the way of covenant, it's actually a, a covenant between God and the earth. It's not even with specific people, but God and the entire earth. When he makes this covenant, he always gives a sign. And so here in Exodus 31, 13, we have another Oat. We have another sign, and it's the sign of the Sabbath to his chosen people. What does that represent? Well, it represents the covenant that he made, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. And this is really the start of that. Just reading from my notes here, God had entered into a relationship with his people, a covenant relationship in which they were to know him as their God. To that end, he decreed that they should set apart one whole day in seven to rest in his grace. God had already told them to set aside some sacred space, that is the tabernacle. But he also knew that building a relationship takes time. His people needed more than a place to worship. They needed a holy time to meet with their God. The Sabbath was a tabernacle in time, if you will. It was God's way of making sure that his people would take the time to get to know him. Together, both the tabernacle and the Sabbath put God at the center of Israel's time and space. The Sabbath looked back to creation when God made the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh. Commentator Peter Enns develops this point by showing us how the Exodus uses the phrase, then the Lord said, this is really interesting, uh, to echo the story of creation. Uh, when God said that certain things, and then they were so in Genesis 1.1, when God said, let there be light, and it was so, that same phrase is used in Exodus uh, 25 through 30 in relation to the tabernacle. By using the phrase, God is presenting Israel as God's new creation. The words, then the Lord said, appear seven times in Exodus 25 to 31. The first six times all relate to the building of the tabernacle. But the seventh time comes in Exodus 31, verse 12, where God tells his people to rest. So Exodus repeats the creation pattern. There are six days, if you will, to build the tabernacle. But on the seventh day, there is a time to rest. 
Now, keep in mind that as we've worked through this whole series um, in the tabernacle, I think our subtitle was Christ in the Tabernacle. We were always looking towards Christ. We were always looking at what was to come. All the things in the tabernacle were types and shadows of a future fulfillment. And really, so it is with this Sabbath. The tabernacle, again, foreshadowed what was to come. And with the Sabbath, we don't only look back, which we've already done, but we're going to look ahead. We are going to look towards Christ. Everything in the tabernacle, right, from the articles to the priests to the the sacrificial system, everything was looking towards Christ. And now we're going to pick that up in the idea of the Sabbath. In Hebrews 8, uh, we're told that exactly what I said, that the tabernacle and that all the things related to its service were a mere copy, a mere shadow of what was to come. And the weekly Sabbath was also a foreshadowing of a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. The Sabbath also looked towards a full redemption when God's people would enter their rest in the promised land. But for the present, it was a time to grow deeper in their knowledge of God. By spending time in prayer and praise, God's people would come to know him as their God. And in the process, they would become holy like him. God gave them the Sabbath so they would know him as the Lord who makes them holy. Their covenant relationship was a sanctifying relationship And Sabbath was a part of the process. As the people set apart a day for worship and rest, God set them apart for his service. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. And one way that the Sabbath is for us is that it helps us grow in the knowledge of God. When we sanctify God's holy day, God uses it to sanctify us. Hebrews 4 talks about a a future rest a rest that awaits the people of God. And praise the Lord for the future rest, amen? This is not all that there is. Uh, We've been talking uh, recently, some of the the pastors and church leaders, that there seems to be a strong sense of spiritual warfare happening within this church, within living truth specifically. There are many that are are sick, that are hurting, that are facing uh, just serious issues of life, um, diagnoses, health issues, um, problems with relationships, marriages, etc. On and on and on it goes. And when we're, we're in the midst of those things, sometimes we can just only hope, we can long for an eternity of rest, where we can get rest, not just a physical rest, but a rest for our soul. And so praise God that we have that, that we have something that we get to look forward to. This life is, is certainly not all that there is. This life is a battle of, of toil, like I mentioned. Labor is a good thing, but toil and strain, but there's, there's grief, there's loss, there's pain. There are so many other things that we face, but again, praise the Lord that we have something else to, uh, to look towards. So the second point that we're going to look at here is that there was a penalty for disobedience. And there was a penalty for disobedience for not obeying this command. Verse 14 says, therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. 15, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Now, this observance is, uh, is pretty important because There's two different times in Leviticus 19, verse 30, if you're taking notes. Leviticus 19, 30, and then also Leviticus 26, 2. 
And both of the commands mention a reverence for the Sabbath first before they mention a reverence for God's sanctuary, interestingly enough, or even his commandments. It says, if, if my people will honor my Sabbaths and my commands, my Sabbaths and my holy dwelling place. So the Sabbath is the first and foremost thing that God is, is putting a, a, a kind of a precedence here. And so this is not the first time the Sabbath is mentioned, of course, but even beyond this in 31, it'll get reinstituted in 35, Exodus 35, and again, there is that same warning for disobedience, that there is a penalty for violation. So as we've gone from Exodus 16 to Exodus 20 to now Exodus 31, uh, the stakes have gotten a little bit bigger, as it were. Uh, God is getting a little bit more serious about this command and why it is that it needs to be observed, but specifically the punishment for disobedience. To be put to death, one writer says, is to be done at the hands of other people. But being cut off is something only God can do. This indicates that the two phrases used here are not two ways of expressing the same penalty. The first is obviously referring to an immediate physical death. The second, however, could refer to banishment, premature death, the termination of one's line of descendants, and ultimately no afterlife. In Numbers 15, we actually see an example of this. We see that there was someone that was out gathering wood on the Sabbath, violating uh, the, the Sabbath, the command to not do any work. Moses and Aaron, they weren't quite sure what to do about it, so they, they basically, they, they grab this guy and they, uh, they put him in a little holding cell, as it were, and they say, we need to go inquire to the Lord what's going to happen to this person. Now, the command had already been given here in 31 and then in 35, but in Numbers, uh, what ends up happening is not surprisingly, um, but harshly, that he was commanded to be stoned to death, that all of the congregation was to take this man outside of the camp and that he was to be stoned to death for a violation. Again, Peter ends, a commentator says this, this penalty seems harsh, but not when we realize what the Sabbath was intended to do. By not keeping the Sabbath, the Israelite was showing that he or she was not interested in knowing God. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion. It was a repudiation of the covenant. It was a way of saying to God, my relationship with you isn't important to me. You're not worth the time it would take to get to know you. When people say that, they are really cutting themselves off from God, and it is only right for them to be cut off from his people. Again, if you're taking notes, two other scriptures that talk about punishment for uh, breaking the Sabbath are uh, Jeremiah 17, verses 19 through 27, and Ezekiel 20, 12 to 24. As we continue in Exodus to uh, verses 16 and 17, we're going to come to the final point that we see, and that is that the Sabbath is to be celebrated throughout your generations. Verse 16 says, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. This phrase, the, these words throughout your generations or as a perpetual covenant are presented in the Noahic and the Abrahamic covenants as well. We saw both of these things where there was a covenant made, there was a, a sign given, but that they were to be carried out or to be observed continually. 
And it's really a sign of the faithfulness and the unchanging aspect of God. When God creates a covenant, when God takes an oath, as it were, or, or gives a sign, you can take it to the bank. He is sure on his word. When he makes an oath, he keeps it. Amen? The Lord does not change, Malachi 3, verse 6. So we know that the Israelites were commanded to keep this. It was a sign between the Lord and Israel throughout all generations. But what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for New Testament Christians? Are we bound to keep this Sabbath observance? It says it's a sign throughout all generations that we should be constantly keeping it. Well, Again, try to make this as simple as possible because there's so much that we could go into in this. And we even covered it a little bit in, uh, uh, when we went through the fourth covenant in Exodus 20, uh, the, the um, excuse me, covenant, the commandment, uh, the fourth commandment. Uh, I looked back, actually, and that was in November of last year. It was like nine months ago. So uh, we're, we're moving slowly again through Exodus here. But uh, I'd encourage you to go and listen to that message as well that Pastor Michael did that talked a little bit more about us not being under the law, the Old Testament law, us being a little bit more under grace. And that is true. We're not under the Old Testament law. We are no longer under that. Namely, that's, that's the Ten Commandments that we can talk about. But there's, there's other ceremonial law and, and civil law that went along with that. There were animal sacrifices and the like. The Old Testament defines at least 613 uh, commands, mitzvahs, uh, that the Israelites were supposed to keep, that they were supposed to do, uh, that really any observant Jew must follow. Now, we have a hard enough time keeping ten, right? So 613 is a little bit... Uh, a little bit intense to think about. So thank God that we are not under that. I remember Pastor John several weeks back talked about the fact that he is so glad that he lives in today's time. He is so glad that he is not bound under those laws. And I think we all say amen to that. So three types of laws. There was the moral law, there was the civil law, and there was a ceremonial law. Now the Sabbath was really almost encompassed in all of these. It was given in the moral law of the Ten Commandments. It was included in that. But it also included, or it kind of fell under the covering of some of the ceremonial or civil laws. From a civil law standpoint, we already read that, that there was a, a penalty for those that were disobedient. There was a way that, that that civil law and punishment, really, was supposed to be carried out. From a ceremonial law standpoint, things like celebrating on a specific day of, of the week, and even other Sabbaths are, are mentioned um, in uh, Leviticus 23, beyond just the weekly Sabbath, but there were other um, Sabbaths that were supposed to be celebrated in terms of special holy days throughout the Jewish calendar. Now, when Christ was crucified, he was the, the perfect, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. And because of that, that is why we are no longer under this Old Testament uh, law. We are not under this curse anymore. He has, he has taken away the sin of the world, that, that substitutionary and atoning death that fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. The wrath of God fell on him, not on us. You and I were guilty of that. And we all know that it fell upon him. And through that, we are now in the new covenant. Colossians 2, 13, and 7, 13 through 17 says this, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, and the substance belongs to Christ. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of the law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amen. The requirement of the law, specifically the civil and the ceremonial laws, were fulfilled in Jesus. That's clear in these sections. Yet, there's a moral law, a moral law that still remains. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And he goes on to say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone that has looked on a woman with lust in his eyes has committed adultery in his heart. He says, you have heard it said that you shall not kill, you shall not murder. But if you're angry with your brother, you are guilty before the court. And he goes on from there. See, Jesus is always moving from the lesser to the greater. The moral law was fulfilled in Christ, not abolished. It's not a a lightening or a lessening of their requirements. Really, he's, he's calling his people, you and I, to a higher standard, a higher call, a higher standard of living. This moral law really goes even deeper than it did before. Any of the the self-righteous Pharisees in the day could have said, well, yeah, no, I've I've kept all the commands. I haven't, you know, killed anyone lately, and I haven't committed adultery on the outside, at least. But no, but Jesus takes it one step further. He's he's looking at at the heart. He's looking at the, the thoughts and the intentions of man. He wants to heal us. He wants to heal us of the sinfulness that is within us in his his goal to restore us back to a relationship with him. So the question many Christians ask today is whether or not we still have to keep the Sabbath. Keyword, keep the Sabbath. And that's usually the way that people ask the question. Well, do we have to? Do we have to keep it? I mean, are we bound by this thing? It says, if six days are not enough for us, we want to claim all seven, so we begrudge God about giving him just one day. 1 Peter 1, 16 uh, says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's quoted from two different places in the Old Testament, and I believe God sends a similar message to us with this idea here. In a way, he's saying, you observe my Sabbaths. Why? Well, because I observe my Sabbath. I observed my own Sabbath. They're the Lord's Sabbath, we heard. But he ceased. He stopped on that seventh day. And he's inviting us to come and enjoy that rest with him. In verse 14, it says that the Sabbath is to be holy to you. Why is that? Well, because the Sabbath is holy to God. God made it holy. He called it holy. He sanctified it and set it apart, and he gave it to you and I as a gift. And it's a day that you and I should set apart to commune, to fellowship, 
to, to reflect on who God is. But we're not bound to do so by the law. But why would we not want to set a day aside for him? After all he's done for you and for me, why would we not want to honor him with our time? Among other things, of course, but why would we not want to honor him? We get to honor him every day, really. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful part of living in the, the new covenant. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have so many more blessings than uh, under the old covenant. But why would we not want to honor him with our time? God knows that his people need a day of rest. We know, I think, that we need a day of rest, but all the more God knows it, and it's in, it's in a different way. We think that we need a day of rest just because we want to get out of the rat race of life. We want to not deal with traffic on the 91. We don't want to deal with our boss at work. We don't want to deal with screaming kids at home. We don't want to deal with the pressure of bills and whatever else we have going on, let alone other difficult things that I was talking about. People are going through a lot. People are always going through a lot. Maybe right now it seems like there's a little bit more things with health, diagnoses, etc. There's a lot going on, and people are looking to escape, but God knows the type of rest that we really need. One of the day's primary purposes, referring to the Sabbath, is to help us to know God. To that end, the Lord's day is for worship, and especially public worship. Nothing we do makes a bigger difference in who we become than worshiping with the people of God every week. Of course, we need to spend time with God daily, daily Bible reading, daily prayer. That's the only thing that's going to sustain really who we are in our, our, our spiritual lives. But meeting weekly with God in corporate worship provides an anchor for our whole spiritual existence. And it is a day. It is not just a morning. We think of Sunday. It's not just an evening as we think of tonight coming here together on a Wednesday night. As in any relationship, developing deeper intimacy with God cannot come from just one morning, from just one side or one time of the day set apart. It can't be rushed. How often do we sometimes come into church and, and we think, oh yeah, I think we can just make it to church on time today, you know, and we're, we're wandering into the uh, 845 service. That was a joke. We have an 830 service. But there's a lot of people that come in at 845 or 1045. And then as, as soon as uh, the, the message is over and that, that last song's being played, people are rushing out the door, rushing, right? Because what do they have to do? They got to get to something else on their schedule, something else on their list. I don't want to broad brush. I, I know there are certain people that truly do have to go to work and they have you know, certain things that sometimes they might have to get out. But by and large, we're, we're so consumed with wanting to, to get out because quite frankly, sometimes we can't even commit an hour or two to God let alone a day. How do we think about committing a whole day to the Lord? Again, not because we're bound to, not because we're under a law, not because our salvation depends on it and it's uh, anything related to works, but out of love for him, out of reverence for him, out of wanting to grow closer to him. It's difficult for us to spend that time. No doubt there are exceptions, but as a general rule, someone who is faithful in attending public worship will grow in grace. This makes sense when we remember that God said to Moses, you must observe my Sabbaths so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. God uses the Sabbath to sanctify us. When we keep it, it has a way of keeping us, and it keeps us away from sin, and it keeps us close to God. Now, as we look into the New Testament, we can see that the early church cherished Sunday as 
a new day of rest, that the early church moved uh, from Saturday to Sunday um, out of a, a, a reverence and uh, out of respect almost and celebration for the resurrection of the Lord. The Lord rose on a Sunday, and that is why the Christian church to this day continues to worship on a Sunday. On the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. That's Acts 2, 1 through 4. Pentecost came 50 days after Passover, and that was the first day of the week. It was on the first day of the week that Christians came together and to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. It was on the first day of the week that Christians came to present their tithes and offerings, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Sunday was the new Sabbath for the Christian church in the early days of the church, but rather than calling it the Sabbath, the apostles referred to it as the Lord's Day. We see that in Revelation 1, verse 10, as John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And all of these things point to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So out of honor for him, we celebrate on a Sunday. We can see that Sunday worship was a practice of the apostolic church. It wasn't discussed uh, outright very often in the New Testament, those couple references that I gave you. But the practice is explained by many of the early church fathers. Uh, Barnabas, written about A.D. 110, said of the Christians, they keep the eighth day, Sunday, no longer the seventh day of the Sabbath, but they keep the eighth day, the first day of the week, with joyfulness, the day in which Jesus arose from the dead. Similarly, Martyr said this, Sunday is the day on which we all hold our communion assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day arose from the dead. Now, there's some critics and some strict uh, Sabbatarians, they'll call There's Christian Sabbatarians, ones that say, you've got to keep the Sabbath, and it is the sixth day. Uh, we can think of uh, at least one particular unnamed denomination that uh, is pretty adamant on this, but there are several others that actually hold to this, that you have to worship on the Sabbath. You have to worship on the seventh day of the week. But in reality, Christians didn't change the day of worship. Christ changed the day of worship for us through his resurrection. He ushered in the new covenant, and his, honor, his uh, followers, they honored that day. They honored that day of resurrection with a celebration. The Old Testament people of God were looking forward to salvation. It was only right for them to have their special day of worship at the end of the week, the sixth day. Excuse me, the, the seventh day, Saturday. In anticipation of the coming of their Savior. But now that Christ has come, we, New Testament believers, begin our week by worshiping God on the day of the resurrection. We do not keep the Jewish Sabbath in all its particulars, with all its penalties, with all its stipulations, but we do honor the Lord's day by ceasing from our regular work and by devoting the day to the pleasures of knowing God. For the Christian, the Lord's day is not an obligation, but it is a privilege. It is not a chore, but a gift. It is not a burden, but it is a delight. Isaiah 58, 13 says, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasures, and from speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you the heritage of Jacob, your father. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Author Marva Dawn uh, writes this in an intro to one of her books on the Sabbath. In this book, we will consider many aspects of Sabbath ceasing to cease not only from work itself, but also from the need to accomplish and to be productive, from the worry and tension that accompany our modern criteria of efficiency, from our efforts to be in control of our lives as if we were our own God, from our possessiveness, our enculturation, and finally, from the humdrum and meaninglessness that result when life is pursued without the Lord at the center of it all. In these dimensions, we will recognize the great healing that can take place in our lives when we get into the rhythm of setting aside a specific day for all of our efforts to provide ourselves and make our own way in the world. A great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive or lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be our own God in our own lives. So here's some questions that I asked myself this week. I always ask myself these questions first before I present them to you. I think you know that by now. Um, But here's some questions that we can use for our own examination as we seek to honor the Lord with the Sabbath. Am I honoring God by getting enough rest? And I purposely leave that idea of rest a little open-ended, whether you want to consider it physical spiritual, emotional. I hope that you would consider all of those things, but maybe there's a certain area that's a little bit more specific to you. Am I honoring the Lord by getting enough rest? And secondly, am I taking advantage of the Lord's day as an opportunity to grow in my relationship with God? Is Sunday truly a day of rest for me, or am I letting my work get in the way? J.C. Penney, the man behind the department store of the same name, said this, If a man's business requires so much of his time that he cannot attend the Sunday morning and Sunday evening services and the Wednesday night prayer meeting, this sounds like a different era, does it not? Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and the Wednesday night prayer service, then that man has more business than God ever intended him to have. See, when we come to a place that we can celebrate the Sabbath really out of the overflow, out of our heart, out of, out of uh, reverence for him, out of appreciation, out of love for who he is and what he did for us, and not out of obligation, that's when we have truly ceased, in a sense, in our own life. Beyond the idea of just mere physical rest, when we have ceased, when we have acknowledged, acknowledged that God is God, that we are not. I often say to people that are stressed out and, you know, just thinking that I got, I got to get this done, you know, but before the day ends and, you know, if not, everything's going to, you know, everything's going to fall apart. I tell them, you know what? Whether you get this done or not, the earth's going to keep on spinning. Most likely. I mean, unless God changes his mind tomorrow and something happens, but most likely the earth is going to keep on spinning. And we so often think that there's all these things that are dependent on us and we try to play God in our own way, but we need to that's proverbially said, let go and let God. I know that's a little bit cliche, but that's part of it. Psalm 46, 10, cease striving, it says, and know that I am God. Be still, some translations say, and know that I am God. But the idea is that we cease striving, that we stop doing things on our own accord, and we let God do what he needs to do. As I mentioned earlier, Hebrew, 
Hebrews 4 tells us that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It says that the one who has entered into his rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Jesus himself is our Sabbath rest. Mark 2, 27, Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath, and he offers us rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Shane quoted it uh, during worship, uh, not knowing that I would close the, uh, the message with it. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the question for all of us tonight here who are listening is, have we found that rest? My prayer is that you have. If you haven't, I would ask, why not? Is there something holding you back from it? It's a simple invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, who are in the midst of toil, come to me and I will give you rest, is what he says to us. Or maybe you've come to him, but you've wandered away a little bit, maybe gone down your own path, started to uh, not observe some of the commandments, as it were, not honor God with your time, not give him the attention and time that he deserves. Maybe you need to come back. If that is you, we'd love to talk with you up front. There's pastors and leaders here. But really, it's, a, it's as simple as a prayer away. Church, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have through your Son, Christ Jesus. It was for freedom that we have been set free, Lord. Thank you for that. We thank you for the miraculous work that took place upon the cross, that you gave your one and only Son in our stead to take all of our guilt, our, our, uh, our sin, Lord, our sin that was deserving of, of punishment and of death, you put that burden upon your son in our place, Lord. Thank you for that. Lord, if there's someone that has not trusted in you, that has not decided to follow you, I pray that they would do so, Lord. I pray if there's any that have wandered away, that they would come back. Let them know that you are always there. Your arms are open and you say, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Thank you for the rest that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you even more so for the eternal rest that awaits us one day, Lord. Father, would you strengthen and equip and encourage uh, all of the brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord? Would you build them up in their most holy faith? Would you give them a fresh uh, filling of your spirit, Lord? And I pray that the words of this message today would sink down. They're not my words, Lord. They're your words to your people. And Father, maybe we need to, to readjust our priorities. Maybe we need to look at some things in our life and, and make some switches in our priorities to make sure that we can honor you in the way that you have desired, in the way that you deserve, really in a sense, in the way that you have commanded us, Lord. So we just thank you again for this night, Father, in Jesus' name.